What up, what up, world? It's your homeboy, Wordplay TJ, and I'm back with another video for you. In this three-part series, I have a timeless talk with Derek Sivers. Stay tuned. Okay, so I had the honor to sit down with Derek Sivers and talk to him in length about a number of topics um, around music and life and, and, and culture in general, and we had a great conversation. If you don't know who Derek Sivers is, he is an entrepreneur, a writer, a producer, um, he's a book publisher, he's a TED Talk speaker, and he does all these great things involved in the world. And most notably, he is the founder of CD Baby. He's not doing anything with CD Baby anymore. He's focused on writing books and being a publisher and writing his blog and his podcast and, and all these other new things that he's taken up. The most important thing that he's focused on is being a dad. Speaking of being a full-time dad, the first thing that I asked Derek or the first thing that we really talked about in this interview was why I thought the interview wouldn't happen and his uh, focus of being a full-time dad. Take a look. So how's it going, Derek? Good, TJ. Thanks for the call. Um, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me and and sit with me. Um, when, I, when I got this interview, I was super excited about it and what what i didn't think is that it would actually happen so <laughs> really <laughs> and and i i mean i guess that says a lot about you or your mystique in the indie music world mm. but um but it, yeah it just for me personally i i just i just think highly of you and so that's that's something that I'm really appreciative of you taking mm. the time to respond. Thank you. I, I don't mean to be uh, mysterious. I just <laughs> had a kid and just went off to be a full-time dad for a few years and disappeared. So um, See that yeah, makes I, sense. I, I yeah. talk about that all the time like there should be more full-time dads. Yeah yeah in fact I, I actually the reason I did that was because of John Lennon. When I was a teenager, I remember reading that John Lennon, when he had his first kid, made a huge mistake by just kind of not being there at all for his kid because he was doing Beatlemania. Um, so when he had his second kid, uh, he just told his manager, like, all right, no to everything. I'm going to disappear for five years. Just don't even ask me. The answer is no. I'm just going to be a dad for five years. And I, I remember thinking, man, if John Lennon can do that, like, I can do that. Yeah, anybody can. Yeah, so yeah, when, when that happened, when I had a kid, I was like, all right, time to say no to everything for five years, and I just disappeared. The next thing I asked Eric is what kind of projects is he into? What is he working on today? Take a look. Okay, so for the, for the audience that is not familiar with you, can you talk a little bit about um, how you got here and then where you are today? Sure. You, you talk about being being a, a father, a full time father right now, um, but yeah, where where are you? What are you working on today, and and where did that come from? 
Sure, I'll give you a little context. Uh, well, what I'm working on today is just, now I'm really just writing. I'm working on a few books. But for a little context, uh, I'm old, I'm 50. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I was born in the 60s. And uh, in the mid 80s, I decided I wanted to be a full-time musician and I was dead set, monomaniacal, focused on that one thing. All I wanted was to be a famous musician. And um, so let's see, yeah, I just, I got really into it. Um, I went to Berkeley College of Music up in Boston as my college uh, from 87 through 90. Graduated in 1990, moved to New York City and just threw myself into the heart of the music industry. Um, had a day job inside Warner Chapel Music Publishing for two years, which was amazing to see the music industry from the inside of things. You know, it's like so often as musicians, we're given advice about like how to get contacts inside the industry and all that. So it was amazing to be inside the machine and see how it works from the inside. I felt like a spy. So that's, what, that's what my next book is about. I, I have a book called Your Music and People. It's about what I learned from the inside of the music industry. Nice. Um, and then after two years of that, though, I was still being a full-time musician on the side, or I should say part-time musician, like every night, every weekend I was doing gigs. And after two years, I had saved up enough money that I could quit my day job. So I quit my last job in 1992 and was a full-time musician ever since. Uh, so made my living in New York City as a musician just by doing the hustle. Like the only way you can really make a full-time living as a musician is by saying yes to everything. You know, somebody yeah. asks, uh, hey, we're looking yeah. for a bassist for this metal album. I'm like, yep, that's me. I play m bass <laughs> for metal albums. That's what I do. Right. Somebody says, we need a kind of a jazz acoustic guitar solo. I'm like, yeah, that's me. A friend asks you, can you score their indie film? Yep. Right. Yeah, exactly. Whatever it is, you say yes. Well, at first you say, what does it pay? <laughs> <laughs> and you say yes, if it pays enough. Um, so I did that for a number of years until I put out an album of my own music, 1997, and it sold pretty well. I sold like 1,500 copies, and then I wanted to get it selling online. But at the time, there was no way to sell music online. Um, there was literally nothing unless you were signed to a major label with major distribution. Mm -hmm. So I built my own little shopping cart on my band's website. And then my friends asked if I could sell their CD through my band's website, and I said yes. And then friends asked friends and, you know, I mean, friends of friends asked and that turned into CD Baby by accident. So for the next 10 years from 1998 to 2008, I ran CDBaby.com, which became the world's largest seller of independent music with um, 150,000 musicians and 2 million buyers. And uh, yeah, and I left in 2008. I just kind of felt done with it mm -hmm. and uh that's yeah that's when i kind of disappeared and had a kid a couple years later and i followed that up by asking what's the best song that he's heard from an independent musician on cd baby and he goes into this theory that he talks about the the starting line artist versus the finish line artist and so i, I think that was really intriguing here it is speaking of cd baby in general what's the best song that you've heard created by an indie indie artist on that on that channel oh god um okay you're probably going to guess what i'm going to say which is almost cliche that you can't pick 
<laughs> one favorite. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think about a favorite in a bunch of different genres. I used to put together these little compilations of my hand-picked favorite albums. Mm -hmm. I think it's like CD Baby compilations. And I'd spend a bunch of stupid money to print up like 10,000 of these, or I don't know, 50,000 or something. And then we'd stick them automatically into every single order. Like no matter what you ordered, you'd get the nice. thing you ordered and you'd also get this compilation. I'm so proud of that, but of course it never <laughs> itself and I had to stop. But anyway, but I think the, um, I think what I learned from this is the quality of the song, the most amazing song, doesn't mean a damn thing if you take the wrong approach to your career. Like music right. can't speak for itself. And I thought of, I think I realized this most concretely when somebody asked me once, what is the average artist on CD Baby sell? Because I used to post the numbers publicly on our about page. It used to say, we've got well, 169,000 artists. Uh, I've paid out $85 million to musicians or something like that. So somebody would do the math and they divide the total payout by the total musician and say, uh, it looks to me like the average artist makes $120 or something like that, whatever it was, right? And I thought about it for a bit and I went, huh, well, technically that's right, but no, it's actually completely wrong and here's why. It's because there are two different kinds of artists, right? I think of it as the starting line versus the finish line. Meaning, when you get together a bunch of your own music and you put it out, whether as an album or some kind of collection or anything, when you release your music, for a lot of musicians, that's the starting line. Like, as soon as they release their music, it's like the starting gun has gone off in a race. And then it begins and they do everything they can every day to promote the hell out of it. Mm -hmm. After it's released, they tell everybody, they do everything, they contact every outlet. That's when it all begins for them is when the music is released. And I'd say for those artists, I'd say the average amount they would make through CD Baby would be like $1,000. And some made, you know, 100,000, but I mean like the average, right? Yeah. But then yeah. there was another kind of artist for whom it felt like the when they release their music, that's like the finish line. It's like things have been yes. building up to this point for a long time. They've been working towards it, and then they put out their music, and yeah, there you go. <laughs> you know, they just like, <laughs> all right, world, I did it. I released my music, and it's like they're done. You know, they don't really work it. Maybe they send some to friends, and maybe they send out a few emails, but for the most part. That was the finish line. They did it, they released their music, they're done. And for those kind of artists, I'd say like the average they made through CD Baby was like 20 bucks. Um, and a lot of them made nothing because they just they would just put it on CD Baby and do nothing about it. So yeah. you asked about the quality of the song, but I couldn't help but guessing that's maybe where you were going with that is like, how does the most amazing song affect your career? Like yeah. is having the most amazing song Derek Sivers ever heard at CD Baby, does that do anything for your career? And no, the answer is no. It was weird how disconnected the quality of the song was from the outcome of their career. You know what yeah. I mean? I, I think people early on in their career should figure out whether or not they're just in it for the art or they're in it to bring some of the business into it too. Like, yeah. 
I, I feel like you have to make that defining factor because then at that point, if you're not willing to do any of the business or touch it with a 10 foot pole, you got to get somebody to help you. Right. Or just admit that it's the finish line for you. There right. might be some people listening to this right now that if they looked into their heart of hearts or whatever you want to call it, realize that actually, no, it's they're happy to just release their music. Mm-hmm. And maybe they're doing this hustle because they think they're supposed to, but they don't really want to. Yeah, sometimes that's like, just enough. Yeah. Uh, if I put out an album now, I'd probably be like that. It's like, eh, I just put it out just to put it out. I don't really care what happens, you know? I and like you got to be honest with yourself. The next thing I focused on is, is Derek working on any music right now? And he starts to talk about uh, changes in identity. Are you currently working on any music? No, Um, but let me give you a better answer. It's hard to admit when your identity changes. How old are you now? I'm 32. Have you already had like a major life transition where you thought you were one thing and then changed to another thing? Yeah, about 30. <laughs> it, it was a, it was kind of, you know, coincidental being a milestone moment. But um, at 30, I was just like, oh no. And then I looked at it and that's the result of the album that I, I'm putting out next month. Cool. Okay. Yeah, to me, it's... um. It took me a long time. Like I, my identity was so wrapped up in being a musician for mm-hmm. such a long time. Even my 10 years at CD Baby, I considered it's like, yeah, I'm doing CD Baby right now, but really I'm a musician that's doing CD Baby. Yeah. The truth is man, for those 10 years of CD Baby, like only the first year did I make any music, the next nine, like none, not at all. So then I sold the company and I thought, okay, well now I've got free time. Now I'm gonna make music. But it was always just some other excuse why I wasn't doing it. You know, I'll do that right after I finish answering my emails or after I finish this program or this book or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after a few years, yeah, I realized like really recently, I'm talking like just a few months ago, um, this metaphor that my old clothes don't fit anymore. <laughs> uh, you know, guys know that thing where you have a hard time admitting that this, you know, these clothes that you're used to wearing don't fit anymore. <laughs> Yeah, I think um, it's time to clean out my own closet. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And so, yeah, carrying the metaphor further, it's like I was trying to put on new clothes, but the new ones weren't fitting either. And I realized it's because I was still kind of refusing to take the old ones off. I was trying to put on new clothes over the old clothes. Yeah. But you can't do that. You actually have to, like, completely take off your old clothes. And even then, if you keep them around the house, you're too likely to just put them back on again. So I had to completely discard my old clothes. So yeah, I gave away the last of my musical instruments just a few months ago to a friend of mine that's a full-time musician here. And um, yeah, that was a really weird thing to do, but it felt wholehearted and it felt good. It was hard to get to that point. But once I realized like, yeah, that's just not me anymore. Um, Then getting rid of the instruments themselves with the last step because my soul felt torn with the guitars looking at me the keyboard looking I had the whole like native instruments set up with all the sounds and the keyboard it was just like it was beckoning me every day and my soul felt torn so um yeah gave them away 
So that's it for this part. Be sure to tune in next week for the next uh, part of the interview that I had with Derek Sivers of CD Baby. Be sure to subscribe to this channel. Like this if you like it. Share this with somebody that you know. And until next time, it's your homeboy Wordplay TJ. Peace. All right, so the video is over now, and if you liked it, give it a thumbs up. Let me know how you feel about it, and then watch more videos about the same subject up here, and then another video that YouTube recommends down here. Peace. So welcome back to part two of my conversation with Derek Sivers. Um, he's the founder of CD Baby, and right now he's a entrepreneur, book writer, publisher, um, all of these things that <laughs> doesn't really have to do with CD Baby anymore. And we had a long, in-depth talk. If you um, enjoyed this talk, this part two, be sure to go back and watch part one or watch part one before you watch this um, because you're you're not going to want to miss any of the the, the bits and the, and the things that Derek has to offer to to you. So the first thing I asked was, was he inspired to make um, a blog and all these other writing projects because he wasn't focused on music anymore? Uh, was that the, the, the catalyst to this new creation? Uh, here's his answer. No, I started that stuff 12 years ago when I quit CD Baby. Um... So no, that was the stuff that I was like, like writing meaning writing words, not music. Um, writing has been the stuff that I've told myself was a hobby. Mm -hmm. And I only like a year or so ago started admitting to myself that no, this is my real thing now. I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm not even really a programmer. I'm really a writer. So That's funny how that works out. Because I told myself yeah. this, this channel was just something that I would do on the side. And now it's becoming like the thing that's, <laughs> that's taken off. Uh, wow. That's funny. I think life keeps throwing us those, those, um, I was going to say curveballs, but that's really the wrong metaphor, isn't it? Um, those little things that seep in, you mm -hmm. know, almost like the, uh, oh, fuck it, I'm not gonna, <laughs> I was going to make a metaphor of the cat that keeps showing up at your door to be fed and eventually you realize, <laughs> I guess this is my cat. Um, no, but never mind. I'll skip the metaphor, but I just feel that <laughs> these things keep happening in life where, something that takes you a while or a long while to admit is, you know, uh, you've had a shift in values, right. something that you've been right. say, pushing down in your speech, getting your there, actions yeah. is really on top. Yeah. yeah. Next I asked, is there something that he feels like is his best piece of writing? Here's what he had to say about that. This is a cliche, but my next book <laughs> that I'm working on right now, it's called How to Live. And the other books I've done, I've felt good about, but this one, like, I'm literally screaming with joy sometimes as I'm writing it. I'll like write something, I'll go, whoa, what the hell? Like, I'm like yelling in appreciation at ideas that I'm coming up with while writing it. 
And uh, that's an amazing feeling. So it feels like the best thing I've ever done. Yeah. Yeah. Is that, that's what you're living right now. I'm assuming this, this is why this hallelujah praise is coming out of you. <laughs> uh, hmm. Yeah. Is it because you lived it? Yeah. I mean, okay. The title, how to live makes it sound like I'm being a know-it-all that's going to tell you how to live, but no, it's actually quite the opposite. So the title's referencing the fact that, um, that, nobody knows everybody's got strong opinions and nobody knows and so it's written in kind of a ridiculous style where every chapter i should say each chapter has a strong opinion on how you should live and each chapter disagrees with all of the others um which is just a blast to write and makes me realize like yeah this is actually how my head works and this is how life works and this is how advice works is that it's all conflicting and my favorite part is that I, I actually did come up with a great conclusion to all of this, um, but I have to leave that as a surprise for later. I asked Derek, does he believe work should be play when we're being musicians and, and how can that affect our, our work overall as independent musicians? There's this idea that everything should be fun or I won't do it. Meaning like this, that's the idea of like, oh, I just wasn't inspired to write music or I don't feel like making those phone calls I know I need to be making or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a dangerous and harmful belief to hold where you think you need to wait to be inspired to do something. For this, I really like the metaphor of the muse as like a beautiful woman that's never going to make the first move. you always have to make the first move towards the muse. And only if you go towards her, will she come halfway to meet you. Um, I almost never wait for inspiration. I just sit down to start creating, whether I feel like it or not. Mm -hmm. And then as I work, the inspiration comes. Um, How can can musicians use that type of um, thought process to their advantage? Oh, you just um, don't wait for inspiration to write a song. Like if you know that, okay, it's time, I've finished my last song, I'm going to write a new song. You just sit down and very deliberately come up with something, whether it's playing with sounds, if you get inspired by sounds, or don't underestimate the power of imitating a great song. Doesn't even have to be a hit song. But if there's a song, even if it's buried on the back of an album you got once, that has a melody that you can't get out of your head, or a beat that's just like sick and you know never got to be a hit for whatever reason, you can just straight up imitate it. Yeah. Because we're all imperfect mirrors. You're never going to do a perfect imitation of that thing. So just go ahead and copy it and get inspired by your version of that melody. You know, and, and I don't mean actually like nick the melody where you, now you have to go get licensing rights. Right, right. But I mean Do like- Cover license, yeah. Yeah, like even if you just literally invert it, you know, mm-hmm. um, it, play the MIDI notes, whatever, and then do that little thing mm-hmm. <laughs> in Ableton <laughs> or whatever, you, yeah, you yeah. flip it. All right, now yeah, it's yeah. your unique melody. Whatever it takes. Um, you know, sometimes, actually God, most of the time when I, I mean, I kind of left out the part of me as a songwriter from the story, but like I wrote over a hundred songs from the age of 14 to 29. 
And um, a lot of them were just really deliberate exercises where it's like, I'd pick a certain technique that I liked. I'm like, okay, I like the way he did that melodic jump in that mm -hmm. song. I want to do melodic jumps like that. So I'd sit down and figure out what is that jump? I'd say, mm, that's a, okay, from a C here to that E, man, that's a, what do you call that? A 13th, right? Yeah. Like an octave plus three more. And I like the way that it falls down to the seventh. Like, okay, how yeah, can yeah. I use that interval? I want that interval in my song. So I just write a melody with that interval. So that's like not waiting for inspiration. That's just a deliberate assignment. You give yourself an assignment to craft something. Then Derek goes into a little bit about hit songwriters and their process. I, I found this part really, really interesting. And as a songwriter, I'm just like, yeah, let me soak this in, see if I can gain some of this, this knowledge and, and see what these songwriters do. And it, it's, it will surprise you um, how, how simple everything is. Take a look hit songwriters, if you read interviews, I used to just read every single interview I could with every hit songwriter. I just wanted to learn like how to be them, right? It's crazy that these hit songwriters often admit that their most successful hit song was one that they thought was just stupid, like not even worth recording. Like so many times you'll read these interviews with a band that said, yeah, we had this one stupid song or, or we were almost done with the album but on the last day of recording, we were just like making fun of our producer. So we put together this stupid little song. We wrote it in five minutes. We recorded it in two hours. <laughs> and that became the big hit, right? Right. Um, That's always the story. Right. I always thought of that with, uh, I don't know if this is true, but you know, the who let the dogs out. Right. Every time I, was I hear like, that, that I'm had like, to be five minutes. Yeah, exactly. Nobody crafted that song. Um, <laughs> so I think as musicians, like we get into the nuance of yeah. what we're doing, right? Like we like a song because it has a certain production thing we're really proud of yeah. or a lyric that we sweat it over, but nobody cares about those things. Like, yeah, we feel like we need to overthink it. Right, right. Like you did something really difficult with the way you arranged your instruments or you tweaked that kick drum or whatever. And so we think, well, this, everybody has to hear this song because I put so much work into that kick drum. But like the stupid, fun, dumb things end up being the most memorable. Um, so when you ask about work as play, then yeah, in that case, sometimes you should think of your songwriting quite often as just play. Like what would be fun? What would be funny to write yeah. and amuse you while doing it? Um, so just being ridiculous and having fun. I think it helps also from taking, it helps prevent you from taking yourself too seriously. Yeah because yeah. I think most people listening to our music don't take us very seriously. We're just another <laughs> click on the screen. So uh, if you can be in that same lighthearted attitude towards it all, it's probably yeah. healthier and more successful. Finally, I asked Derek, did he ever make a song that he felt like would be a hit? And here's his answer to that. I, I had this one song. <laughs> uh, so it's funny, most people don't notice. If you go to my website, sivers.org, mm -hmm. The way I do my hyperlinks is I don't put them into these big, obvious colored buttons. It's usually the, the words that link to something else. So on the very first sentence of my website, it says, like, I, I've been a musician. If you click the word musician, it'll bring you to sivers.org slash music, which is every piece of music I ever recorded in my life is all there on one page free for the taking. Nice. Um, 
so there is a song in there called Kiss Me Here that I, that was one of those ones like, I loved that song, but on the other hand, like, yeah, I thought that could be a big hit. I was going for, uh, what I was trying to imitate was the song Low Rider by War. That's mm -hmm. like, Ch -ch low rider. Get that groove. But I wanted to get it like even like dirtier, skankier. It's supposed mm -hmm. to smell like, you know, smoke wafting out of an old beat up car window or whatever. I was just going yeah. for this really kind of janky junkyard sound that I never quite got. So I never got the recording of what I wanted. But um, I liked the idea, like the version that's in my head, like should have been a hit, but oh well. <laughs> that's amazing. So that's it for part two. I appreciate you watching this video. If you like it, be sure to get ready for next week where part three is coming out. If you haven't watched part one, go back and watch that. Be sure to like this video, subscribe to this channel if you're new to me. And until next time, it's your homeboy Wordplay TJ. Peace. That's amazing. All right, so the video is over now. And if you liked it, give it a thumbs up. Let me know how you feel about it. And then watch more videos about the same subject up here. And then another video that YouTube recommends down here. Peace. What up, what up, world? This is your homeboy, Wordplay TJ, and this is the final part to my interview with Derek Sivers. He's the founder of CD Baby. He's an entrepreneur, writer, and, and dad, and all of these other things that he does now. Um, and I had a great conversation with him. So far, there's been two parts. If you haven't been able to see those or if you haven't watched those, be sure to go back and take a look at them because I think it's really great for you to watch these in sequence and in order because Derek has a lot of nuggets if you are a writer, performer, songwriter, just a musician as in general. So the first thing I ask is mastery a skill? Is mastery something that musicians should focus on? And if so, um, what what musician has used mastery to their advantage um, in history? Oh man! Um, so my intro to music was um, a little embarrassed to say in the mid '80s was all those fast heavy metal guitar players. That was like the thing in the mid '80s was the big hair and the fast fingers on a guitar. So that was how I began at the age of 14. Is I practiced finger exercises and scales and arpeggios up and down the neck as fast as I could, like six hours a day for years. And yeah, sure enough, by the time I was like 16, 17. I was really damn fast. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, so I was on this kind of mastery path to the guitar. So yeah, I guess I was kind of uh, drenched in that mindset, that mastery mm -hmm. mindset. It was all about who could be the fastest, who could be the best. Um, but yeah, that goes for everything. I mean, I mean, historically, apparently there was this like violinist a long time ago called Paganini mm -hmm. that 
they said he was like possessed by Satan because he's <laughs> just so amazing, you know. So this virtuoso um, technique, it's funny that I'm, I've got mixed feelings about it now because I kind of hate listening to virtuosos. Yeah. Like instrumental virtuosos that, that kind of have this, you know, watch me approach to their instrument. I don't find it nice to listen to. I prefer an amazingly well-crafted recording or a, a great arrangement or a great, um, a, a, an amazing song that's like well-crafted song that's like so tight, meaning tight where it's like every note needs to be there. Like, man, yeah. that's a perfect song. Um, so I do still believe that the mastery path, the virtuoso path of like mastering your craft is the way to go in anything, whether you want to be a writer, um, a producer, an engineer. Oh my, yeah. what would that path look like? How to like master the, the craft of engineering. You so, probably want to like, like sit in, sorry, go ahead. Speaking of that, mm -hmm. that's, that's what's burning in my head right now. There's, there is a musician that I feel like history is gonna be like, you know, this guy was the greatest, but yeah, please tell he's, me. I'm curious. he's primarily an engineer. Um, he's Jay-Z's engineer, and his, uh, he goes by Guru, Young Guru. Okay. Guru is incredibly, like, tight in his engineering. And when mm -hmm. you listen to songs like uh, Empire State of Mind, like, okay. that song, that record, he engineered um, Run This Town by Jay-Z. Um, he's done a bunch of stuff for other musicians, like... Um, I think he worked on uh, the new Rhapsody project, who is a young MC, female MC from uh, North Carolina. And, um, but every time he, he touches the boards, I have to analyze his mixes because that's just that. something that I'm just like, how did he do that? You know? Yeah. You know, and I always compare my, my masters to his masters and I'm just like, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I want to get there. I want to love that. Do that. There was an engineer back in the '90s that uh, called himself Flood, F L O O D. Mm -hmm. just man, I would just buy any record if he engineered it because I just the sounds were just so creative. He would do stuff that was so twisted and different. And and I'm listening to this like, how did you get that? So what is that? And I just yeah, I would like I'd see sitting there in my studio like trying to imitate these sounds, like trying to figure out how he did that. I love that. See these. These people, I, like the the underrated behind the scenes heroes. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, a couple come to mind. Um, I don't know about underrated, but Max Martin. In the world of pop, this like Swedish guy that's like forty nine that nobody would recognize on the street has written more or think as many number one singles as the Beatles, or almost as many, or something like that. Or maybe he's like right behind Lennon McCartney as having the all time. Maybe. So starting back in 1990, he's the guy that wrote um, Britney Spears' uh, Hit Me Baby One More Time. Uh -huh. um, and like all these Backstreet Boys hits and all the way, I think he's still doing, I think like these Katy Perry hits you hear, like all these came from one guy. <laughs> and he's just, it's like masterful pop songwriting and how cool to be behind the scenes. I don't know if he, I think he also produces a lot of them. Um, but yeah, as far as like pop songwriting, that guy's just a master. Um, in Nashville, 
there's a guy named Tom Jackson mm-hmm. that is a master at crafting a great stage show. He's actually a stage show consultant, I guess you could call him. He directs um, concerts. Yeah. Like, so when a pop star is putting together their show to go on tour for a year, he works with them to like craft a great live performance. And so you can, if you yeah, look up um, Tom Jackson Nashville, you get some of, I think you can buy his videos and book or something like that with all of his advice. Kind of, he tried to share everything he's learned. I think you can get videos of him doing these workshops with artists mm-hmm. and uh, just a master at putting together a great live show. And it just, I really, I love this idea that we think of virtuosos as you know the fastest or whatever, or the best. Yeah. Yeah. But like you, you gave this example of, um, sorry, what's his name? Guru? Guru. Yeah. Young yeah, Guru. Guru the engineer and just like, or the songwriter or the, the guy that's consulting on stage shows. Like these people <laughs> yeah. are total virtuosos. I love yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. Next, we talked a little bit about how artists can be in the now. Um, I think his answer was really intriguing. And so I, I think you should take a look at that. Um, I'm actually a little stumped. Uh, if I ever said that in the past, I think I might disagree now. Um, I probably know when I said it, there was a great book called the time paradox about living in the present moment versus the future and versus mm-hmm. the past and all that. But I don't know. Think about your question right now. Um, I know that a lot of people who have written hit songs also like very deliberately sat down with the goal of writing a hit song. Like even, I remember reading some Beatles interviews that like even people would glorify them thinking that they were all like peace and love, but, but they said, no, we would sit down and say like, let's write a swimming pool. <laughs> like let's write a song that's gonna make us a million bucks and get us a swimming pool in our house. Um, and then they would write one of their great songs that everybody knows. And yes, it was a great song, but they wrote it in a very future focused, like let's make lots of money today kind of approach. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, on the other hand, there are some people who are totally um, doing the same thing and not having any success and creating crap. And there are people who live in the present moment making crap and there are people living in the present moment who are just making genius come out of their speakers. You so, can say um, like, I guess when the Beatles sat down to write, they're thinking about the future in that moment. That's what I mean. And yeah. not really, and not really, and not really being in the now. So it can happen yeah, so both ways. It's, it's probably just completely disconnected. Uh, I bet you that whether you're being in the present now moment or whether you're future focused is probably kind of unrelated to what you're going to create. Yeah. Um, there, there are ways to create amazing music either way and there are ways to create crap either way so looks like just have fun yeah (laughs) because because i mean guru says that um when he sits down to to engineer a record he'll listen through it once you know get the vibe of it and then he'll go through and just kind of have fun with it and make the adjustments as quick as he possibly can you know Mm. And, and once he makes those adjustments, he has to have the confidence to stick with those first of mind adjustments. Wow. 
Did he say that? Did you read an interview or something? Or? The, I've watched several interviews and cool. that's, that's basically his process is going through and like, he doesn't overthink anything. And that's what he, that's what he mentions is he's not in a space where he like needs to think about what adjustment he needs to make or anything like that. The only time he is really uh, thinking involved in, in his craft is when there is like new technology because he was one of the first to use Pro Tools. And, oh, wow. and so he, he learned that process and then just kind of put it into his, his intuitiveness. Wow. Cool. And, and just to go, it's to show that there are different ways. Um, one of my old favorite producers was Brian Eno, mm -hmm. whose whole thing was to deliberately overthink everything. He would like question every note saying, does that really need to be there? Let's see what happens when we get rid of it. Well, what isn't there what, that we could try to put in? And so he would, his whole thing was to try to flip expectations yeah. musically to deliberately overthink everything. I think he kind of felt that that was his job. Uh, so that's really cool to hear the guru just goes with the opposite. And, and maybe that's his, his intuitive nature, you know? Right. Brian's intuitive nature is to just flip things on his head. Wow. Wow. <laughs> no, <laughs> I love this stuff. I love I'm having music. Those, that moment now. To round off this interview, we started having a little fun. Um, I, I don't think any part of the interview wasn't fun for me, but um, I, I just wanted to loosen it up a little bit for these last couple questions. And so I asked him, what's his uh, favorite hip hop song and what elements does he like most about it? Here's his answer. I am embarrassed to say. Um... I'm embarrassed because I wish somebody would turn me on to something new. I wish I had some like brand new thing I could say is my favorite, but yeah. I haven't yet. So anybody listening, please send me an email. Please turn me on to your new favorite thing because I need to be turned on to something new because as of right now, you got to understand, I moved to New York City in 1990. Mm -hmm. And to me, the sound of New York in 1991 is low end theory. <laughs> like, yeah. Boom, yeah. Boom, 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 when it comes on, back in the days when I was a teenager, before yeah. I had status, before I had a pager. <laughs> and I just love that. It's like the pager, you know, the, yeah. line, the way that Bobby Brown is just amping like Michael. I'm like, I love one of these, these songs are like, it's, it's a, you know, it's like a Polaroid photo. Yeah. Oh, my past self. It's like this yeah. dead technology, this, you know, um, so yeah, God, when, you know, I can try to listen to some new stuff, but still when it's like when low end theory comes on in the mm -hmm. shuffle, that's like, I just get, um, Q-Tip was good about using that bass and, oh God. in his productions. And that was Ron Carter, wasn't it? That was like, you know, he's mm -hmm. like a real jazz bassist on that yeah. album. And just, you know, the, this guy that plays with Miles Davis. But okay, so you, but you asked about the ingredients. So the thing is, I would love to listen to like instrumental hip hop. Mm -hmm. Like there was this album long ago called, I think it was a band called Disposable Heroes hip of Hypocrisy with mm -hmm. Michael Franti that later made Spearhead. And the thing is, there was so much going on instrumentally, but then Michael Franti was like on top of it all and like mixed really high in the mix vocally. And I wish that I could get an instrumental version of that because 
I wanted to hear what was going on behind it, right? Like, yeah. I've never been into folk music because folk music seems like it's just all about the lyrics and they're just strumming CGD chords behind it, which is just boring. Yeah. But then you get hip hop, which is also all about the lyrics, except what's going on behind it is so damn interesting. Interesting, yeah. So sometimes I really kind of wish it's like, you know, the lyrics are so distracting. The voice is so distracting. We're, you know, we're humans, we're drawn to the voice. Mm-hmm. I wish I could get an instrumental version of most of the hip hop out there. Even, yeah, I do that with a lot of records. I always try to find the instrumental version, even if I like a song. I want to remove the distracting voice so I can focus more on what's going on behind it. So I guess, yeah, I'm still, when it comes down to it, I'm more of a music guy than a words and voice guy. So when you ask yeah. what I love about things, I guess I've given two answers now. The dis- the nostalgia, especially Q-Tip's voice and Tribe yeah. Quest and Low End Theory in particular, it's just that, to me, it's that snapshot of 1991, moving to New York City, oh my God. It was just overwhelming. It was a, I was 20 years old, you know? It was, yeah. like, it was a time in my life. Um, and then and, the qualities of the instrumentals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And finally, at the end of this entire interview, I asked, is there one song in history that every musician should study or every songwriter should study in order to get better at their craft? And his answer is pretty cut and dry. So go ahead and check it out. No, here's why. Um, So remember I said I went to Berklee School of Music. So from the age of 17 to 20, I was in this music college full time Mm -hmm. where the teachers would make you analyze their favorite music. They'd say, listen to this Cannonball Adderley solo. Listen to this John Prine song. And the examples they were giving, I never liked. Um... So yeah, I would sit there and we'd analyze their favorite song, but it just did nothing for me, right? Um, they'd say, oh, listen to you know, the, uh, the harmony of this. Listen to his lyrics describing the, the wrinkles on the back of his grandmother's hand. Isn't that you know, a masterpiece? And I'd think, no. <laughs> I, don't, I don't ever want to write lyrics about the wrinkles on my grandma's hand. Sorry, that's just not my thing. Um, it took me a couple of years. <laughs> what? It reminds me of my creating, uh, creative writing professors. Yes, exactly. <laughs> this guy was like that kind of guy, but applied to, to lyric writing, right? So it took me a couple years to realize how to use their analytical techniques on my favorite music, music that they would probably hate, but kind of like you talk about, like, you know, figuring out how did Guru do that and me going, mm-hmm. how did Flood do this? Um, figuring out how to dissect whatever moves you the most. Like, don't let anybody else, especially not some guy that started CD Baby, (laughs) tell you what's the one song you should listen to to become a better musician. Like, no, ignore everybody else's opinion and instead learn the techniques of how to dissect your favorite song. In fact, here's my best advice on that. If you want to understand how a car works, it's not enough to just take apart a car. You can take apart a car in your driveway and break it into a thousand pieces, and you'll know a little bit of how a car works. But if you really want to know how a car works, you got to put one together and make it work. So I think this applies musically too, that if you want to understand 
how your favorite music works, you need to build it up yourself. You can take it down, you can dissect it, but you've got to go into the studio and imitate that song, every layer of it. That, that syncopated echo, the, the reverb here, like try to get the frequencies of this kick and to try to even imitate the sound of the voice and the mic and like compare it back and like figure out, it, yeah, rebuild that's it what, yourself. That's how to do it. Yeah. That's what every A&R says. Really? really? <laughs> they say go study the hit records and just mimic one of them and, and you'll find it. Huh, I've never heard somebody say that. Cool. Um, but this has been great. Um, I, I feel like I've come away from this conversation a little bit more, um, aware and, and knowledgeable. Um, I feel like I know you, uh, better now and, and, and yeah, this is some great content that, um, I'm going to deliver to, to my, my supporters and my, my watchers and, and, give them some of these golden nuggets that you've, you've given <laughs> well, thanks, us, TJ. given me. Anyway. Well, thanks, TJ. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, anybody listening to this, please go to my website and introduce yourself. It's, uh, it's the reason why I do these things. I'm not selling anything. I just, I really like the people that I meet from doing these conversations. So thank you. Yeah. And I'll be sure to put that down in the, in the description as well as um, information on, on new books and everything else that they can they can find obviously from from the front page here if they click some of these links they'll they'll go on a a treasure hunt (laughs) thank you um but thank you for your time again and i appreciate it cool thanks um that's a wrap that's a wrap So that's it. That is the end of this three-part series. I appreciate you if you've watched part one, part two, and part three. If you haven't been able to see all three parts, be sure to go back and take a look. If you're new to this channel, be sure to subscribe. Like this video if you like it. Share it with somebody if they'll get something out of it. And I appreciate you watching. Until next time, it's your homeboy Wordplay TJ. Peace. All right, so the video is over now, and if you liked it, give it a thumbs up. Let me know how you feel about it, and then watch more videos about the same subject up here, and then another video that YouTube recommends down here. Peace.